Well, I'm happy to be back with you. It's been a few weeks. In fact, it's been almost a couple months since I've stood on this stage and asked you to open your Bibles. And I don't know if, if it strikes you like it strikes me, but I have been just so, so blessed with the other men in our church who have brought God's Word to you over these past several weeks. It has been just a privilege and a delight for me to be out there listening and being part of the church as we interact and as we listen to God's Word. And I, I want to say something because my expectation this morning, I hope, is the same as yours. That you won't be listening to what I have to say so much only as it is a means for what God would say. And I have been, part of my encouragement was that I was out there with you. I have to say, my apologies for this confession, but looking over people's shoulders as they had their Bible on their phone, as they had their Bible open, as they had their notes scratching on their connection, or their, um, some people use the connection cards for that, but the, um, what, what are they called? Talk sheets, yes, for the talk sheets. And, and just the fact that you came, you come every Sunday expecting something from God, which I think is what you ought to be doing. That's what I come for on Sunday morning. And so I trust and pray that God will do that for you today. So with that, hopefully a bit of encouragement, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. There are some of you here who have not heard a message from the book of Romans at our church because it's been four or five months since we have opened to the book of Romans. But over the past year or so, we have attempted to engage the Gospel of Jesus from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we're picking that up again this morning with the intent to... Understand Romans 9 through 11 over the course of this fall. And I trust it will be an encouragement to you every single Sunday. But I want to remind you that the book of Romans was written to a church under pressure. It was a church that was in the center of the universe, it was in Rome. It was a church not like ours because they were not free together altogether like this. They were rather scattered in houses, more like we call life groups. They were a church that had some inherent problems. I mean, think about it. Inherent problems. You don't get a letter from an apostle if you don't have problems, right? <laughs> I mean, he might send one of his friends to say, good job, keep it up. But every one of the letters in the New Testament says, you know, you got this problem, let's talk about it. And so we're, this is a letter to a church that has problems. Some of the most significant problems were caused from the outside and then percolated into the inside. They were the center of the universe there in Rome where uh, Caesar held court and put the pressure on particularly the Jews. And he put pressure on the Jews in part because of the turmoil around the Christos. 
the Christ. And so there were, there was pressure on Jews. There were believers in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles in this church. And the pressure from the outside just squeezed the church on the inside. The answer Paul understood to this pressure was a, a further, more focused belief in the good news of Jesus Christ. It was a more radical commitment to the Gospel of Jesus. And in fact, that's exactly how he structures his letter. In this letter, he starts off by uh, announcing the centrality of this good news of Jesus for the church. And he says it 16 verses in. He says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For, I am, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now you notice that there are several things in these verses. There is, first of all, the, the admission that this is good news. Gospel, that's, what, that's what gospel means. It means good news. And so, he says, church, you will find your hope in the good news. You will find your unity in the good news. You will find the motivation for life in this good news. And he said, I'm not ashamed of it because not only does it, does it shape your life here and now, it is your hope for salvation. God has demonstrated His power over death and sin and hell on the cross of Jesus and through His resurrection. God exercised His power to raise Jesus from the dead so that you might be certain that you can be saved from your sin. That salvation comes to everyone who believes. And so there is a personal response demanded by this good news. It isn't just good news that I assent to and say, hey, that is good, or yes, that is news, but rather... That that good news means something to me. I, I am reliant on, committed to this good news. And the good news ultimately establishes and defends the righteousness of God. Simply said, Romans puts forth God as righteous or holy. It, it, it lets us know that there is a God who is Maybe above all things, right. Not wrong. The problem then with, with us, the problem with human beings, is that we are wrong. We are on the wrong side of God's rightness. And so, that is revealed to us in the Scriptures so that the righteous shall live by faith. The Gospel is most clearly presented. I mean, as you, as you look at the, the book and you go through this book, you, you'll notice that he establishes the Gospel as good news at the very beginning. And then he says, but the good news has bad news. 
People have thrown off the Creator and have decided to worship the creation. People have set themselves, they've become wise in their own minds. They've exchanged the uh, glory of the incorruptible God for things made with hands. And there are some who say, Ha! That's not me. I don't have those problems. I'm a, I'm a God-fearing man. And they are self-righteous. There is in the human heart either this propensity to reject God or to exalt self as self-righteous. And so chapters 1 and 2 and 3 establish that all are under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in chapter 3.23. And then here is, here is the good news. Here is the Gospel right here. It is really in about as condensed a form as you can find it. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a problem. And God set out to fix that problem by justifying sinners. Or make, justifying and making right, you could say, are synonymous. Or justice justified justification and righteousness. And so, what He does is He says, this righteous God makes sinners righteous. They are justified by His grace as a gift. They're not justified by works of the law. They're not justified by their religiousness. By their goodness, by their effort, they are justified as a free gift. That's the good news. Through the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Jesus recognizes, God recognizes that what sin does, sin doesn't only condemn us and corrupt us, sin makes us a slave. Sin captures us. And so, in justifying us, Jesus not only sets about to undo the condemnation and the corruption, but He also sets out to free us from being captives to slaves, to to sin. That's chapters 5 and 6 of Romans. So this justification extends to being bought with the price. Being bought by Jesus. So that we are His. We are no longer sins. We belong to Him. We now have a new leader, Jesus, instead of the old leader, Adam. That's chapters 5 and 6 of Romans. So we are redeemed and placed from the old life into a new life with Jesus. Jesus is the one that God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation means that God satisfied His wrath against our unrighteousness by the sacrifice of Jesus. You can think of it in Old Testament terms of sacrifice of atonement. So God put forward Jesus as the One who would satisfy God's wrath against sin. And therefore, against sinners. It was His blood shed on the cross that was received by faith. It is that that satisfies God's wrath. So Jesus dying in the place of sinners who deserve themselves to die. 
the substitution of Jesus so that then if they receive that substitution and say, that counts for me, I need that, then God's wrath against them is completely um, put away. This was to show God that God is righteous. You see, that's, that's a central theme really in Romans. That God is right. And the only way for God to be righteous or right and embrace and love sinners is to somehow account for their sin. Which He did on the cross with Jesus. Part of the problem was it appeared that God was unrighteous. Because He had, he had embraced sinners who had sinned beforehand and it appeared like nothing happened. But God instead sent Jesus so that those sinners might be forgiven and and loved. And God demonstrated that He was right to love because He sent Jesus to forgive those sins. And so He did this so that He might be both just and the One who justifies those who believe. And that, in essence, is the center of the Gospel. That Jesus stands in the center of of our relationship with God, and our only hope to be made right with God is through personal faith in Jesus to have our sins forgiven and the, uh, the relationship that we had with God reconciled. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore we have peace with God. We are no longer at war with Him because we are in rebellion the cross of Jesus has made us at peace with Him. And he goes on and he talks about our freedom from sin and he talks about then the struggle of the new life as we, as we try and live free from sin and yet it, it continues to draw us back until the Apostle in chapter 7 just despairs and he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one of the one of the verses that's easiest for, to learn in the book of Romans that I think all of us probably need to commit to memory there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus Romans chapter 8 verse 1 The good news is that there is no condemnation you might have a bad day there's no condemnation you might have a great day there's no condemnation there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus The ghosts of the past that haunt you they cannot condemn you because you have trusted in Jesus and there is a new life that you live free from the dominion of sin headed for the destination of heaven. And he goes on to say so many other wonderful things just in Romans chapter 8 that he ends then with this. He says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I love this crescendo here of the Gospel in the end of Romans 8 about the love of God for us expressed in Jesus. We are more than conquerors Him who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. 
this good news that we talked about that the church needs. The church in Rome, the church here in West Lynn, the church, the, the gospel that we need, the good news that we need boils down to the fact that God loves you in Christ. He loves each one of you and He loves all of you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And nothing from the outside can separate you. Nothing from the inside can separate you. You have been bought with a price. The person of Jesus has died in your place so that you might be loved eternally by God and nothing can separate you from that. That's where we left the book of Romans. See, that's, that's the beautiful Gospel. That's the good news that this church needed when they're under pressure. That's the good news this church needed when they were divided along racial lines and along uh, economic lines. You see, this good news that God loves you in Christ and nothing can change that is wonderful and it presents a problem. It presents a problem perhaps that no one's thought about. It presents, well, it presents several problems, actually. But the first problem for them is along ethnic lines. See, I skipped over this, right, when I gave you the introduction here in Romans 1, 16, 17. Notice that he can't really speak of the Gospel to this church without recognizing their dividing line. Their ethnic dividing line. Their racial division. This Gospel comes to both sides the same. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Or to the Greek that the Gospel comes to both in the same way, which should have the uniting effect, but up until now hasn't. Up until now, it appears as you try and understand this church, if you were to sit in on their business meetings, let's say, okay, the Gentiles think that they're all that. Because those Jews, they've missed the boat. And now it's, it's come down to the fact that I'm not a Jew and I, have, I am loved by God. The Jews, on the other hand, are on, they have their arms crossed saying, yeah, but we had it first. And they just, have, they just aren't seeing eye to eye about that. And what's driving the wedge, what's driving the wedge is the necessity of belief in Jesus. Not only the necessity of belief in Jesus, but the certainty that the love of God comes to those who believe in Jesus. Now, if you think about that, there's good reason for them to be to see it differently. Let me say it that way. Because the Jews were part of God's chosen people. Right? They are physical descendants of Abraham. 
It was to Abraham that God gave the promise that I will make you a great nation. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It was to Moses that God gave His law and established His covenant. They were His covenant people. A covenant means a relational promise. He had made them a relational promise, these Jews. And you could perhaps see why their arms are crossed and they're looking across the room at the Gentiles. It was to these Jews that God had given a king, David, who actually was cited in chapter 1, verse 5, when God said that according to the flesh, he's a son of David, son of God according to the resurrection. But it's Jesus that is at issue in this church. Does Jesus change what God has already promised to these Jews? That's the question. If, it, if Jesus is really the sinner, if the Gospel is really good because of what Jesus has done, then is it good on account of what God had promised in the Old Testament? And you see, that is the issue that comes up in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. We'll, we'll get to this next week. But the problem this raises now for half of the church is this. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. If the Word of God to Abraham fails, if he says, I will bless you, and he doesn't, what hope do the Jews have now? But more than that, what hope do the Gentiles have that, that in fact when God says there's no condemnation, is there really no condemnation? Well, I'm not completely sure. It depends if God keeps His promises or not. That's the problem that is now introduced and, and dealt with in Romans chapter 9-11. through 11, Which is, which is for all of us a very central problem. See, this, this appears at the face of it to be a historical problem between a, a divided church in Rome, partly Jew, partly Gentile, partly slave, partly free. But it's not. It's a problem here for you and for me. If God's Word fails, then what, <laughs> what good is good news? How is this Gospel even worth believing? And so, the fact that He is so sold out, so committed to justification by faith, so that you are made right with God by your faith, not by your physical descent, not by your relationship with Abraham, but by your faith, that causes a problem that he feels he needs to stop and deal with in chapters 9-11. through And it's worse than that. Because if God does not keep His Word, then He is not just and righteous. He is unjust. And so he has to ask the question in chapter 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God all of a sudden now playing favorites? Did He play favorites in the Old Testament and now He's switched His favorite and He's playing favorites now in the New Testament? Is God 
not acting rightly toward His people to whom He made promises? That's the question. And I'm just going to say, you'll have to come back next couple weeks as we deal with that particular question. Because these are in, these are in next week's section. And the answer is in ways that you wouldn't answer it if... I wouldn't answer it if you asked me the same question. I'd answer it a little differently. But he answers it in a way that uh, I think is very, very useful for us. But that's why, so that's why we have more or less three parts to the book of Romans. So this is the last little bit of orientation I'm going to give. There are, there's chapters 1 through 8, which we looked at so far, which are essentially the, the sum or the expression of this good news. From, it is the power of God to salvation, chapter 1, to nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus in chapter 8. Then there is what some would consider a parenthesis here in the middle, that is, chapters 9-11, through 11, dealing with this question, if this Gospel is so good, does it nullify the Word of God and therefore make God untrustworthy? 9-11. through 11. And then, if we satisfactorily believe the Gospel and deal with the injustice of God, perceived injustice of God, I should say. Let's lightning strike the stage. Then chapters 12 through 16, the, the last part is how do I live in this new life in Christ? How do I live this life that, that was established for me by belief in the Gospel? That's the third part of Romans. And so, that brings us... The, the, Message almost over brings us to the text we're going to read this morning. <laughs> Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't connect this at all to chapter 8. It's just as though he says, We're just going to stop and deal with this now. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed Forever. Amen. And you can see, even with the amen, he's dealing with this as sort of an introduction to this second part. And what he, what he does here, there, there are two things going on in these first five verses that I want you to see as, as we sort of just take another pass through them. The two things I want you to see the first thing that you, you cannot help but notice is his emotional posture as someone who believes good news. It is very surprising. I mean, our, 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 church's, our church's mission statement starts out with, we delight. But this, these verses are not tainted with delight so much. There is an emotional posture that I think is very important. And the other thing is, that that emotional posture does not change the truth of the Gospel. I want to talk about that for a minute. 
He is speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, he's not about to change what he has said about the necessity of personal faith in Jesus as your Savior. Though he understands that that excludes thousands and millions of people. See, I, I, I think it's important to stop and acknowledge that. Because there are some of us who are tempted to say, I am uncomfortable about the implications of the Gospel, therefore I have a hard time believing it. That really, if I think about the implications, it's overwhelming and I can't believe it. And he said, guess what? The truth still stands. What God has done in Christ does not change regardless of how it makes me feel. This is very important. Because I think it's easy to, especially on your more sober days, to consider the implications here and to say, you know what? How can I believe that? And he says it doesn't change the truth. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, he could not be more serious. To take an oath, I'm speaking the truth, not lying. That's, that's enough to put us on alert that says whatever's about to come, he means to say it. But to double down and to say, my conscience, my conscience, that little voice inside of me, he says, aided by the Holy Spirit, causes me to be broken-hearted. So this is his emotional posture with respect to what he believes. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish in his heart. Now, I'm just going to stop here before we go on because... I think these two things are really important. That you can believe something that makes you uncomfortable. You can fully commit yourself to something that you don't completely understand. I don't understand how all the implications of the Gospel play out and I can still believe it. So what you, what you have coming here in 9, 10, 11, is not in any way a watering down or a compromise of what he believes. In fact, it is a ramping up of what he believes. You can believe it even, I'm going to say this, even if you don't always like it. It, it is still true. And then, the emotional posture of someone who believes the Gospel is exemplified here by Paul. I think he prescribes 
He prescribes it later in 12 through 16, but here he exemplifies it. And he says, I believe the gospel, and I'm not going to let it go, but it gives me great sorrow and unceasing anguish. This is different than mere indifference. You see, I think several of us, many of us, believe the Gospel and are indifferent to the implications it has for other people. We look and we don't care. I mean, there are days, there are days, and and it's not because I'm super spiritual. I just, when I go somewhere public, like to an airport or to a mall, and and I see all these people that live within just miles of me. And they're outside of grace. And it's overwhelming when I think of it in those terms. And so what do I do? I do my best to block it off so I don't have to think about it. Because of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish that comes when I think in terms of the Gospel with respect to the people around me. Clearly, this propels him to engage as a missionary. But nonetheless, that's the pressure that he feels because of what he believes. But this emotional posture is so much different than rejoicing, than pride, than certainty that I am in, they are out, and that's how it is. And one of the pressure points that we have as Christians is this whole place of emotional, our emotional posture. Because whether you like it or not, that for in, I'm just going to say this, the evangelical church was identified with the election of our president. His emotional posture does not represent Jesus. You may like His policies, but you get wrapped into, whether you like it or not, His emotional posture when you like His policies. And we have a different allegiance than that. And it is important that you work at the distinction between my allegiance to Jesus and my belief in policies for the American people. Because that, as I look out and see the world around us, that is maybe now the chief objection to Christianity. And so, this whole idea of emotional, the emotional posture that the Gospel brings to us is very very critical. If great sorrow and unceasing anguish is not enough, he goes on to say, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Are there people in your life that you can look at and say, you know what? 
I love them so deeply that I wish that I were cut off and they were that I was out and they were in. That I were lost and they were saved. And that's what that's the emotional posture of Paul, the gospel believer, that I think is here as an example, so that when he holds the truth, he is not misunderstood as uncaring or unsympathetic or completely dismissive of an entire ethnic group. So he is humble and broken by the gospel. I wish I were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers. That's, that's where Paul is coming from as he expresses his commitment to the Gospel of Jesus. Then, he rolls up onto it again and says, you know, it's not just that I love them, but it's, they had every advantage. They, they could have been. They should have been in. They should, have, they should be the ones believing in Jesus because of their advantage. They're Israelites. This whole Old Testament is written about them. They have the adoption. God brought them out of Egypt as His Son. He was going to be their God and he would, they were going to be His people. They had the glory It was a glory that showed up in the tabernacle in the temple when Moses went in. He came out and he had to cover his face because the glory of God had stuck to him, you might say. They understood, at least at one point, that God was glorious. They had the covenants I've already mentioned to Abraham and to Moses and to David. They had those promises of God so that God... God pledged Himself to be in relationship with them, to be their God, have them be His people, to adopt them as Father and have them be His children. They had the covenants. They had the giving of the law. They had the expression of the righteousness and character of God in His law. What it looks like as as God describes what life under His leadership looks like. They had that. They had the worship. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. So that, so that the very place where God met men, the very place where the, a man or woman could encounter the living God belonged to them. It was nowhere else. It was theirs. They had the promises. They had the Word, the very Word of God. That if they would be His, if they would follow Him, that He would be their God and they could be His people. Not only that, they had the patriarchs. They had Abraham. They had Isaac. They had Jacob. They had all of God's promises. All of the things that that come to those descendants because of the promises of God were theirs. 
And it broke his heart that yes, in fact, they had all these advantages and they still rejected God. They had all these advantages and they still refused to humble themselves under the Gospel. That's why as he, as he thought about all these advantages and all the hope that was theirs that they left on the table and walked away from, that, he, that it broke his heart. It's a beautiful thing. It didn't break his heart for anything that had to do with him. It broke his heart because he recognized He recognized that the very hope that every human being longs for, they were walking away from. Because they rejected Jesus. So it still is in the center point, Jesus that's at stake. And so that's what He says. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah or the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The center, the center is Jesus. And knowing that the center is Jesus breaks his heart for those people who are outside of Jesus. And of all of the people that should have gotten it, it should have been these uh, ethnic Jews. And they walked away from him. And so. the more he thinks about it, the more he meditates on the glory of Christ in the foolishness of walking away, the more brokenhearted he is. And see, one of the things that I hope will happen as we pick Romans back up and as we as we review the Gospel and as we remind ourselves of uh, how undeserving we are of receiving it ourselves, that really, as you look out, there, there are people, I'm just going to say, that are better than you. There are people that are more deserving of it than you that don't have it. And the more you meditate on how undeserving you are, of the grace that you've received in Christ, the softer and more humble and more brokenhearted you become. And you see, ultimately, ultimately, it's not really because of those people. It's not because of you. It's ultimately because of Christ and the beauty that is found in Him. Look at what it says here about Christ. Christ who is God over all. That's what's at stake is my belief in this Jesus, this human Jesus who walked on this earth, was crucified, buried, rose again, and now ascended to heaven. He is God over all. And submission to Him is the issue. His glory, His blessedness is at 
stake in my belief, in your belief, in the belief of someone else. And so my hope for you from this passage of Scripture as we, as we enter back into Romans and, and, and as we love the good news and as we believe it and embrace it and hold on to it unswervingly, my hope for you is that it will place you in a humble and broken-hearted emotional posture. So that when you communicate with someone else, you're not communicating from above. You may not even be communicating from side to side, but from underneath as someone who is a servant who recognizes the mercy that God has showered on you. And that's going to come out all the way through Romans 9-11. through So that Jesus might be esteemed as He ought to be esteemed, as God over all, blessed forever. That's where the, that's where the Gospel starts. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 He is the Son of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God according to the resurrection. It's really about Jesus. May He be blessed forever and may we be humble and brokenhearted as we believe Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can hold the Gospel, that we can believe in Your love for us, that we can cling to You no matter how desperate our situation is, no matter how much pressure is on us from outside. We can cling to You and believe in You regardless of whether we understand everything. Even in spite of the fact that we don't like everything that our belief in You implies. But God, would You enable us to do that? That Christ might be exalted? That He might be the center of our lives, of our church, like He will be the center of all of eternity? That we might even in the life of our church begin to experience what it's like to live under His leadership so that when we are under His leadership for all of eternity, we might have more joy and that our hearts might fully delight in Him. So God, would You help us today to get this right? Help us understand it as we can, but Father, when we don't, would You help us? to love You, trust You, and be humble before You. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.